people always think that there's lots of cheating that go on on food shoots. In food advertising, certainly, they used to use mashed potato instead of ice cream. Because if you can imagine under the, all the set lights, it's exceedingly hot. Mashed potato, if everyone used to have like the school dinners, they used to kind of scoop it with a, almost with a, like, an ice cream scoop. And you'd get those lovely cracks like you do with, with ice cream. And so that's a perfect stand-in for ice cream that would sit there on the set for ages. And they use like varnish. So you've had a really juicy looking strawberry and they wanted that lovely kind of droplet. But again, they wanted it sit perfectly for hours. You could have kind of clear varnish dribbling down this strawberry, but it would just endlessly sit there perfectly. Some advertising shoots, things like that happen. But these days, it's all pretty boring. You cook it, you eat it for your lunch, you take it home for, for your dinner. But it's really nice. There's like loads of really creative people on set all just come together to, you know, just get excited about food and make it look really good, really. I'm Nihal Arthanaika, and this is a brief history of stuff. You'll hear fascinating stories about the ordinary objects around you in this podcast, all inspired by historic items from the Science Museum Group collection. Hi, I'm Mima Sinclair, and I'm a food stylist and recipe writer. Hey, Mima, how are you? Hi, Mahal. I'm well, thank you. Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. The device that we're about to talk about has a prominent role in my culinary exploits, or indeed perhaps limitations, or perhaps not limitations, because you're about to expand my horizons when it comes to the microwave oven. Because, Mima, it does have a bit of a bad reputation, doesn't it, when it comes to cooking? Yeah, I think people have got a really funny relationship with microwaves. From their usage of people being able to cook a full meal from the very beginning to the end, to really now people just using them to reheat their tea or their microwave meal. But however, they still sit on millions of people's kitchen surfaces, taking up a large piece of real real estate, but then rare, like rarely using it. So Mima, with your book on mug cakes... I'm guessing you're someone who spends rather a long time experimenting with what can work and can't work in a microwave. Yes and no, because I think that the main mainstream recipes still very much rely on a conventional oven to cook and, you know, a gas hob or an electric hob. So my main experimentation really happens there when I'm testing recipes and writing them. I first started thinking about writing a cookbook using the microwave oven when people were getting a little bit excited about mug cakes. They kind of crept onto the food scene in early food blogs. I have such a sweet tooth. I thought if someone like me who loves cake as much as I do can make something that tastes good that quickly out of the microwave, I mean, that would be really, really cool. So I just got in the kitchen, started experimenting, made a lot of mess. And I finally kind of landed on a recipe that really started to work. And I was thinking, hey, this is actually quite dangerous because you can have cake in a few minutes just 
with store ingredients that you've just got there. You really just need your mug, your ingredients, a fork and a microwave. And it is as simple as melting some butter, whisking in with a fork a little bit of sugar, your eggs and flour, your chosen ingredient. Maybe if you want to make a, a lemon and blueberry, you're putting lemon zest and blueberries in. Or if you want a nice chocolate melty middle, you just a big dollop of Nutella. You pop it in the microwave and in a couple of minutes, your cake has risen up and is nice and fluffy, just like you would have got it out of the oven. And you can be sitting back on the sofa five minutes after deciding that you really fancy some cake. And you can be back there in front of the telly digging in with your spoon and you've got nothing messy as long as you haven't overloaded your mug. It's fantastic. Do you have early memories of microwave ovens? Yeah, I remember being in the supermarket with my sisters and my mum announcing on Friday, you know, your father and I are going to go out so you can choose a microwave meal. And I think that's one of the fantastic things about microwave. Four people can all choose a different meal and heat it up in a few minutes and everyone can be sat down eating a different meal at the same time and I think as children, really being able to choose from the shelves, like an, an array of different meals, and that like it wasn't up to mum that night. On Friday, I get to choose what's for dinner. And it's very exciting when you're young to, to have full power. And I always chose lasagna and I always burnt my tongue and I never learnt, but I always loved it. The strangest thing I find about microwaves is that people who don't have microwaves seem to be so proud of the fact that they don't have them, like it's considered to this massive faux pas to have one in your kitchen. And I, I can't quite work out whether it's due to like years of people being encouraged to cook things from scratch for health or because people think that real chefs or cooks don't use microwaves, which... I can honestly tell you is not true. Plenty of them do use them. They use them as an integral tool for speedy cooking in the kitchen. I'd like to kind of really understand why some people are so anti them. Well, Maima, we're going to find out more about the history of the microwave oven right now with Liz Bruton, who is the Curator of Technology and Engineering at the Science Museum. Hi, Liz. Hello, Nihal. How are you? I'm great. So just tell us before we get into the specifics of the microwave, a little bit more about what you do at the Science Museum. So I'm Curator of Technology and Engineering at the Science Museum London. I specialise in the history of communications. So mostly the electric telegraph, radio communications, and then through to smartphones today. And as sort of a, a sidebar to that, from radio communications to radar to microwave, is the microwave oven. So where does the story of the microwave oven begin? The sort of genesis of the microwave oven, and indeed of the idea of microwaves in general, starts in the early 1900s. So there's a plethora of scientific discoveries and research around invisible rays. Now, when I say discovery, there's definitely inverted commas around that. Those rays had, to a certain degree, had always existed in certain forms, scientists and engineers discovered ways to detect them and in some ways to also create them. So there were electromagnetic waves, which we call radio waves today, x-rays, 
and so on. And there was a lot of questions around, you know, what could they be used for? Were they good or bad? Were they harmful or beneficial to humankind? Communication with, with aliens on Mars was a popular trope put forward about radio communications from the 1900s through the 1920s. Could they be used for remote control, uh, for things like death rays? So the connection between death rays and microwaves might be one of the sort of long-standing reasons why some people are suspicious of microwaves, but it is quite a tenuous connection in some ways. In the immediate aftermath of the First World War in the early 1920s, there was a number of post-war technologies that began to be developed. So wireless telephony, which is voice over wireless, which then became broadcast radio. There was tanks, there was aircraft. And there was a lot of discussion about, you know, the civilian use of some of these technologies, but also their post-war military use. But also coming back to these kind of mass communications and these invisible waves, both science fiction and science began to think about, you know, could death rays be a thing? It was incredibly popular. H.G. Wells wrote about it and many, many others. And this sort of became this point almost of obsession that death rays could exist. And this would sort of the end of the world as we know it. And this is in the time of, you know, the bomber will always get through. So maybe death rays could stop bombers. And in the 1920s and 1930s, there were all sorts of rumours about, particularly in Britain, about the technologies that Germany was developing even with the restrictions of the Versailles Treaty. And there was rumours that they were working on a death ray that could kill enemy pilots or destroy aircraft from a distance. And the British military was so concerned about this that they put forward a prize of £1,000, which would be about £70,000 today, to anyone who could build a death ray that could kill a sheep from a distance of 100 yards. And just to confirm, this prize was never awarded. But this was was something they put forward. But was it never awarded because no one ever managed to kill a sheep? Yes, that's correct. No one ever managed to kill a sheep at a distance of 100 yards with a so-called death ray. Good. There was a chap called Harry Grindle Matthews in the UK who claimed to have invented a death ray. And then every time he was asked to demonstrate it, he sort of said things around patent rights and commercial secrecy. And I think he was probably more likely a con man than anything else. But nonetheless... In the mid-1930s, the Director of Scientific Research at the Air Ministry in the UK approached Robert Watson Watt, who was superintendent of the radio research station at the time, to advise the government on whether something like a death ray would actually work, the basic scientific principles of it. He was asked, could you heat up eight litres of water to over 105 degrees at a distance of about 10,000 feet? Now, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that eight litres is the amount of blood in the human body. 10,000 feet is the height of a, a low-flying aircraft and 105 degrees is a temperature that would kill a human. But nonetheless, he did some back-of-envelope calculations with a colleague, Arnold Skip Wilkins, and he realised that actually, no, you couldn't do those things. But with the same waves, you could bounce it off the metal of the aircraft and figure out where it was located. And so that's the start of microwave radar. Okay, so there is a direct link between the microwave oven today and some kind of arms race? Yes. So in the mid-1930s, British start to develop the radar technology as a lot of various other European countries, yes, start to have this arms race in the lead up to the Second World War. In February 1935, to sort of 
proof of concept that radar could be a thing. And I must note that radar was the American terminology that was used slightly later on, which was radio detection and ranging. So in February 1935, Watson, Watt and Wilkins conducted what was called the Daventry Experiment near Daventry in Northamptonshire, uh, where they flew an old RAF bomber back and forth between two BBC radio masts. They were inside a small van with an assistant and there Wilkins and Watson Watt were able to track the position of the plane by monitoring a tiny screen, which was a crude cathode race tube display. If you think of the radar screens they have in Second World War films, or maybe the ones you think you know of submarines and you see a bleep on the screen and it sweeps around, that sort of thing. And they were able to see the sort of interruption in the signal and therefore that they could use radio waves to detect aircraft flying nearby. Who was leading the charge on this? Was it the British, the Americans, the Germans? I mean, the short answer is everyone was. There's a lot of people who can claim to be the father or originator of radar in Germany, in France, in Italy, in the United States, in the UK. But probably the three leading countries at the time were Germany, the UK and the US, particularly Germany and the UK, for the fairly obvious reasons that they had the most need to be able to detect aircraft given that it looked like continental Europe was on the precipice of war in the mid to late 1930s. And in Britain, it was the chain home system of radar. So these are ground-based radar trying to detect aircraft flying in the air. So to try and prevent the bomber coming through. I mean, how important were these radar systems, this kind of unbroken chain of radar stations during the Battle of Britain? They were absolutely vital. The chain home system, particularly in the early stages of the Second World War and around the time of the Battle of Britain, were able to give advance warnings of the Luftwaffe, that is the German Air Force formations over France, so that they were able to scramble aircraft and intercept the German pilots coming over the English Channel. So, you know, without Watson Watt and Wilkins, that system might never have been developed And it's worth pointing out that the German military had their own system of radar as well, and that both countries were competing, trying to jam each other's radar signals. So you would, that would be where you'd send out a burst of radio in the same frequency as your opponent's radar system, or even sometimes to jump in on it to try and see where radio signal was coming from or going to, to try and take a guess as to where, you know, aircraft might be going or coming from. So it was a real sort of battle of the waves, if you will. And so with an early warning system established, pilots in the air needed a compact system which could pinpoint attackers and could also be used for navigation and for aerial bombing. And so British engineers Harry Boot and John Randall invented the cavity magnetron in the space of just two months in early 1940 at the University of Birmingham. The cavity magnetron, and we have a rather gorgeous example in our collections, was the first practical device for producing the ultra-short radio waves, that is microwaves, at adequate power to enable a miniaturised radar system to work. And it was leaps ahead of, in terms of size, in terms of power, and in terms of resolution, to the similar technologies developed elsewhere in the world. And then Alan Bloomline and others developed a system called H2S, And this was a system of radar that could go into aircraft and that used microwaves. And indeed, the aircraft that flew with H2S were considered so important that the pilots were told to destroy the H2S system if it looked like they were going to crash or be captured over occupied countries. 
because they obviously didn't want this technology falling into enemy hands. Unfortunately, it did, but the wider technological system needed to be developed, the towers and so on, um, the communication system, the infrastructure, the training. Um, so nonetheless, Britain was at the forefront of microwave radar sort of from mid late Second World War onwards. So you have a connection from the arms race of the Second World War for a radar system that was used for aerial bombing and navigation through to the post-war commercial microwave ovens and then domestic ovens after that. It's a little bit worrying, isn't it, that that desire to create something that could kill people from a distance to take down aeroplanes is responsible for creating the way that millions of people now can cook their dinner. No wonder people are so distrusting of the microwave if that's really how it all started. And I think that rumours really have never shifted that radiation is going to seep into your food, you're going to consume it, that the plastic from the microwave tray is going to kill you off while you sleep as well. Also that you don't stand near the microwave while it's cooking something make sure you don't look in or your eyes will pop open and terrible things will happen. And I mean, where has that even come from? My parents must have told us, me and my sisters when I was younger, not to look at the microwave. And I even caught myself saying it to my daughter the other day, don't stand too close to the microwave, your eyes will pop. Like, what? it's continued with me. And I've not even researched it enough. If I really thought people's eyes were going to pop open, I wouldn't be using it. But yet it still came out of my mouth. So, okay, considering that we don't put anything metal into our microwave oven, what were the dangers of these small portable radar machines that were in these cockpits then? So it's probably worth noting that the cavity magneton was mounted on the outside of the aircraft, not within it. Makes sense. Otherwise, obviously, the signals would just bounce around the aircraft. The bomb aircrafts at the time, they sort of have a, a hump looked like a reverse camel hump underneath the aircraft. And that was where the cavity magneton was kept so that it would be shielded from other radio signals and would be able to bounce the signal either off the ground or, or elsewhere. We've got Randall and Booth's prototype device in the museum and it's on display and worth going to see. The name itself, cavity magnetron, it seems yeah. like a word straight out of science fiction. Yeah, I have to admit, I don't know who came up with the term, but the original prototype cavity magneton is a cylindrical piece of metal with the central hole and then smaller holes or cavities arranged around it. And in cross-section, it looks actually a bit like the chamber of a coat revolver. And so when electricity is applied and a magnetic field surrounds the device, microwaves are produced, affected by the cavity size, hence cavity magneton. So how... Much has the technology changed then from the fundamentals of the original cavity magnetron to what we see in our microwaves today? So from the basic principle, they are largely the same, but they have changed quite a bit. So we have the, the prototype cavity magnetron, and it was quite hard to go from that one to the mass production of the magnetron during the Second World War. The UK was under fairly constant bombardment from Nazi Germany and bomber aircraft at the time, and it would have had great difficulty both in the practicalities of manufacturing, but also the funding for it. So instead, Winston Churchill, in fact, offered the magneton to the United States in return for financial and industrial support to enable mass production. And so a magneton 
was secretly carried to the US in a black metal box with a rather eventful journey strapped to the roof of a London taxi, being whisked away by a porter onto the waiting train and finally secured so it would sink if the ship came under attack while crossing the Atlantic. And it was described as the most valuable cargo ever brought to the United States. And by early 1941, radar systems using cavity magnetrons were being fitted to American and British aircraft, giving them considerable advantage and directly indeed influencing the outcome of the war. The first practical system of microwave ovens came about in 1945 when US industrialised production starts going from military to post-war commercial manufacturing in peacetime. The heating effect of a high-powered microwave beam was accidentally discovered by Percy Spencer, a self-taught American engineer working with the defence contractors Raytheon. And he noticed that the microwaves from an active radar set he was working on had started to melt a chocolate bar that he had in his pocket. I'm sure some of us have experienced, you know, melting chocolate in the microwave. And then the first food they deliberately cooked with Spencer's microwave oven was popcorn, uh, still a popular use of the microwave today. And then secondly, an egg. The latter exploded in the face of one of the experimenters. So (laughs) a lesson to all of us to try and cook eggs in the microwave. We now know that the microwaves from the magneton caused the water molecules in food to vibrate and heat up. So that's what cooks the food. So by 1946, the first commercial microwave ovens were being produced by Raytheon. And they were intended for you know, restaurants and for reheating meals on aircraft. So they were really large, very expensive appliances that had to be continuously water-cooled. So not something you were going to have in your kitchen. How much did they cost at first? So the first microwave oven designed for consumers, which was the wall-mounted Tapan RL1, cost about $1,295 so that's about $11,000 in today's wow. money, which is a little bit more expensive than the £40 microwave that you can get from Argos today. So that put it firmly out of reach for most people. So then a decade later, in 1967, the first Amina radar ranges began appearing on kitchen countertops, and that was about $495 at the time. I and mean, indeed, we have one of those in our collections as well. So is that huge? It's bigger than the standard microwave that we have today, but smaller than the early commercial examples. So still quite large, about the size of an ordinary oven. What has the impact of the microwave oven been? Because there is some snobbery towards it. Was this embraced as this incredible new technology when it finally became available at a price where a lot more people could get hold of one? Oh, absolutely. After years of people using traditional ovens, which took a lot of time and, you know, sometimes a lot of people, depending on the type of meals that were produced. The microwave oven was an incredibly exciting change that a lot of people really embraced. Now meals could be prepared in minutes instead of hours. So the first so-called TV dinner was produced in 1954 and over 10 million were sold in the first year alone. So they were incredibly popular. And it's since then, the popularity of convenience food has, has only grown. So, you know, we're all pretty busy people. We might come home and, you know, be hungry. We might want something heated up or we might want to cook something quickly. And so combinations of sort of busy lifestyles, long working hours, and indeed an increased number of women in the workplace have probably all contributed to the popularity of microwavable food. When microwaves suddenly were available to the masses and were getting very popular, 
cooking your meal from scratch in the microwave was something that people were aspiring to. All sorts of cookbooks were popping up, titled things like Microwave Gourmet. And they were really encouraging people not to just heat up your rice and make a soup, but to cook on a full roast dinner, to go and buy a nice joint of beef, a beautiful chicken or a hen, and microwave it. And I know that in this day and age, that kind of blows our minds because we understand a little bit more about how to treat the food that we're cooking and how it will respond. And we know that if you put a large lump of beef into the microwave, it's not going to turn out quite as deliciously (laughs) as if perhaps you slow cooked it and took your time in another way. A microwave is fantastic if you want some speed cooking. It's not great if you want to brown some meat or give your vegetable bake a nice golden crust. That's not what you turn to the microwave for. But these recipes were encouraging people to cook escargot and really quite high-end food. But incredibly, people were loving it. They were jumping on the bandwagon. So that's interesting. People really saw this not just as a tool for reheating. No, it was a whole new way of cooking. And Liz said, with women trying to be in the workplace more, but still having the responsibility of cooking the family the dinner when they got home, they couldn't be cooking a pot roast from 4pm. They only had maybe 20 minutes and they had to cook the potatoes and and the vegetables and everything. And everyone was coming home at 6pm and they were expecting their dinner on the table just because she had been at work didn't change that. And they still expected a certain type of meal and the microwave was giving women this opportunity to be able to still provide these meals but in a fraction of the time. Uh, Liz I'm curious about whether microwaves have found a use actually beyond radar beyond reheating your old cups of coffee and of course beyond making mug cakes. They have. They sort of touched on a bit before. Microwaves are a form of radio waves. And before the advent of fibre optics, which seem to connect almost every corner of the world today, microwave technology was used for long distance point-to-point radio communications and also for television transmissions. So when you see transmission towers, which are now probably used for mobile phone masts, on the top of hills, it's because they were originally built as line-of-sight microwave transmission towers. And it's believed that some of the microwave technology was used for a top secret backbone communication network for the UK in the case of the advent of nuclear war. The location of the GPO tower, that is BT Tower in central London, was partially classified because it was supposed to be part of the UK's backbone network. So even though it's visible from almost every single point of London, it wasn't shown on certain maps because it was part of this planned microwave telecommunications network, which was going to provide secure communications between strategic um, government locations. I believe it was only fully declassified when a Labour MP mentioned it in the House of Commons. Eventually, fibre optics, which went from being sort of this really experimental scientific technology to this incredibly mass-produced telecommunications technologies in the sort of 1980s and 1990s, it sort of overtook that. And so instead of this microwave radio network, we have fibre optic technology today connecting 
pretty much all of the cities and rural areas that we all live in today. Has the pursuit, Liz, of finding new ways to exploit microwave technology, has it stopped? Is it seen as a technology which is essentially that of the past? Or are there new applications that people are seeking out? I haven't necessarily come across any new applications. I mean, microwaves are still used in scientific research today. People, I suppose, are trying to improve the microwave technology that we have in our kitchen. But the limitation is, in terms of the practical microwave ovens, is the size of what we want to cook. And so they will probably remain the size that they are today, just because that is determined that, you know, you can cook a dinner in it, or you could heat up a mug cake, as Mima has so tantalisingly told us about. And then the microwave oven itself, what does the future hold for that? I mean, I would hope myself that it could be part of the circular economy, because at the moment, you know, you buy a microwave oven, it's maybe 20 or 30 pounds. If it breaks down, you think, cavity magnetron, probably don't necessarily want to go anywhere near that. And so you throw it out, or maybe you can even recycle parts of it, and you get a new one. And I think it would be great with the obvious caveat that we probably shouldn't be messing around with cavity magnetrons, but the other parts are largely replaceable and fixable, that we could have microwave ovens where the parts that aren't the cavity magnetron are more easily replaced. So, Maima, what do you think the future holds then for the microwave oven? I think they haven't their space on our kitchen surface and they're here for the long haul, really. Will the microwave roast dinner return in the future? I hope not. But who knows? I'm sure there is, you know, plenty of things up the microwave sleeve to impress us in the future. Yes, absolutely. Not least of which, the fact that you can make a lovely cake in one, not something that I ever thought about has to be said. So my, I can thank you for that. I hope you've learned a lot today from Liz. I have. It's so interesting. Incredible to know that this little powerhouse in our kitchens is just sitting there quietly and who really knew what's going on inside. Incredible. So Liz, thank you very much. Thank you. I have to admit, Mima, I really, really want your breakfast mug cake recipe now. It sounds amazing. Oh, I'll, um, I should try and like screen grab some of the, um, the recipes and send them over to you guys so you can try them out. A Brief History of Stuff is a Story Things and Science Museum group production. Each episode features a story inspired by incredible items from the Science Museum group collection. The collection contains more than 7 million items which illustrate the impact of science, technology, engineering and medicine on all our lives. If you'd like to discover more stories about the everyday objects around you, then why don't you just go along? to sciencemuseum.org.uk and search for everyday technology. Thanks to our guest author, Mima Sinclair, and to curator Liz Bruton from the Science Museum for taking part in this very special episode. Yeah, love it. The series producer is Will Stanley and executive producer is Hugh Gary. The script editor is Ian Stedman. Audio editor is Kenya Scarlett. And the search for this episode was by Liz Bruton. We would like to thank everyone at the Science Museum Group who made this podcast possible. Now, if you'd like to support this podcast and our museums, then please do check out the Science Museum's online shop. You can claim an exclusive 10% discount on science-inspired gifts using the code 
SMG Cast 10. SMG Cast 10. I personally would have liked the code to have been Cavity Magnetron, but apparently it wasn't snappy enough. If you like a brief history of stuff, we would be over the moon if you would tell your friends and rate us wherever you listen to your podcast to help others discover these fascinating stories. Thank you for listening, and I hope we've inspired you to wonder a little more about the remarkable stuff around you.